Okay, good evening. So again, as we take these few moments just to settle, and settle into the body, finding that sense of balance and stability within the body. Yes, thank you for waving your hands. Ah, all these years of mindfulness. So I was just saying as we settle into the body now and find that balance within the body, that sense of physical steadiness and stability, balance of alertness and ease. And now we've been exploring today the guideline of open. You might also notice the balance between internal awareness and external awareness. So as you're listening now, where is the attention? Is most of it within your own experience? Or is most of it out there on the screen? Or is there a balance? Is there that capacity to stay present with your own experience as you receive the words, the sounds, and so on? So last night I briefly touched into the theme of this retreat which is freedom here and now. And I gave you an extremely simple definition of what that freedom is. The movement from clinging to release. And I've been hearing from many of you in the small group meetings and in the whole group session last night how clearly you're seeing that movement and that whenever we cling to, hold on, crave or identify with experience, we suffer. And likewise, when we resist, reject, avoid, deny what's happening, we suffer. So clinging is a kind of umbrella term for any kind of reactivity, either for or against anything. And the opposite of clinging, which is what all of our practice is aiming for, is release. Release refers to letting go, allowing, letting be, non-entanglement. And this release that I'm referring to happens on deeper and deeper levels, ultimately leading all the way to the peace of Nibbana, awakening. Now, to some of you, that might sound like a very lofty or even unattainable goal. 
But I'm confident that every one of you has experienced at least some moments of freedom, either on this retreat or previously. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't be motivated to keep continuing with this practice. So we can taste moments of release any time that clinging momentarily falls away, any time we're able to let go of craving or resisting experience, even if it's just for a nanosecond at a time. It's the beginning of the experience of freedom. And over time, these moments become more and more the default setting of the mind. In the early stages of practice, though, and often at the beginning of a retreat, what is more apparent is all the ways that we don't experience release, all the ways we cling and resist. So tonight I wanted to focus on one particular aspect of experience that's often a source of struggle, not only on retreat but also in daily life too. That's the struggle with our own minds, all the different aspects of our mental experience, thoughts, emotions, moods, and mind states, and how when mindfulness is weak, we tend to fall into proliferation of varying degrees of intensity all the way through to the most intense psychological torment. So what I'm highlighting here is that many of us have a pretty conflicted relationship with our own minds. And since here on this retreat, we're bringing more emphasis onto the relational practice, tonight I want to explore the relationship with our own minds in a bit more depth. So the title of this talk is Befriending the Mind. What might it mean to befriend the mind instead of relating to it as an enemy. Now, in ordinary life, we normally think of friendship as something that we develop in relation to someone else. But unless we have some capacity to befriend ourselves first, our friendships with others are likely to be pretty limited. Now, maybe the idea of befriending the mind sounds nice, but how might we actually do that in practice? Well, just as with an ordinary friendship, if we want to be friends with someone, we need to get to know them. We spend time with them. We meet them with an attitude of openness, curiosity, interest, warmth. And in the Satipatthana Sutta, the establishments of mindfulness were encouraged to do just that. Because as you may remember, when I did the very brief overview of these four establishments, the third establishment of mindfulness is mindfulness of the mind itself. And in this section of the discourse, we're invited to bring awareness to thoughts, emotions, moods, mind states, without clinging to them, identifying with them, taking them personally, without making them me, mine, who I am. Which, as I'm sure you all know, is not as easy as it might sound. 
partly because our mental activity tends to happen so fast. Often we don't even realize what's gone on until we find ourselves in the middle of a big conflict or some kind of drama or perhaps a 24-hour weekend Netflix binge. So in the beginning, mindfulness of the mind often involves what I jokingly call post-mortem mindfulness. Now normally mindfulness is in the present moment, but if we've missed the present moment, post-mortem mindfulness gives us a second chance. We can look back after the fact, go through whatever the situation was, and see if we can identify the specific thoughts and emotions that may have triggered whatever that unfortunate reaction might have been. So then hopefully with that knowledge, the next time the mind starts to go down a similar track, we might catch the reaction a bit earlier. And then the next time a bit earlier, a bit earlier, a bit earlier. Until eventually that same trigger doesn't have any effect at all. Or perhaps even gives rise to skillful mind states such as kindness or compassion or appreciation or equanimity instead. So the speed of thinking is one challenge in this process of befriending the mind. A second challenge is that without some mindfulness training, most people to tend to identify with their thoughts and emotions pretty strongly believing them to be true, to be real, to be who I am. So in ordinary language, we talk about, I'm so angry, I was so depressed, I'm incredibly bored, I'm such a failure, and so on. Instead of just being able to recognize, oh, anger has arisen. Anger is like this tightness in the jaw, buzzing in the mind, painful, vengeful thoughts. Oh, moment of self-compassion is like this. Slight sense of release, of relief is like this. So the quality of bare awareness that I was trying to illustrate there is very different from the usual way we relate to our minds. Again, without mindfulness training, most people either pay no attention to their thoughts until they've got into some kind of trouble, or they believe their thoughts completely. So on the one hand, we tend to wrongly believe that thoughts are not that important, and on the other, at times we take them far too seriously. So I'm guessing you all may have had the experience perhaps for some of you even today, of being in a state of relative ease, feeling okay, maybe even happy. And then suddenly, seemingly out of nowhere, a random negative thought comes in and it feels like the whole world shifts. We get caught in all kinds of painful, unpleasant emotions, sometimes for hours, sometimes even for days because of one random firing of neurons in the brain. As our mindfulness gets stronger, though, 
we can begin to recognize thoughts as just thoughts. In and of themselves, they don't actually have that much power. In fact, they're just made up of tiny pulses of electrical activity in the brain. And they only have as much power as we give them. So the more solid we make them, the more weight we give them, the more seriously we take them, the more we cling to them. To that extent, they cause us stress, distress. The opposite is also true. The more we know our thoughts as just thoughts, the more we release identification with them, the more freedom we have to choose which ones to respond to and which ones to simply let go of. So challenging thoughts and mind states are a normal and expected part of the practice. And we can actually use them as fuel for the practice. Because as we learn how to meet these painful states with mindfulness and kindness, little by little, we develop the skills to release the unskillful states and strengthen the skillful ones. And I'm pretty confident that all of you here, no matter how long you've been meditating for, have seen that shift seen changes in the overall balance of painful and uh, pleasant mental states. So if you think back to the time before you started meditating to now, whether that's been 10 months or 10 years or 30 years, overall, overall, would you say that you experience less afflictive mind states than you used to. Does that feel true? In balance? Yeah, I see a few people nodding. And now even if painful thoughts and emotions do come up from time to time, they come up less often. They tend not to last as long and they're less intense. Does that feel true also? So generally speaking, does that shift, that shift from painful to beneficial mental states is already happening to some extent. And we can help that process along by practicing very, very directly with the mind, bringing mental activity into our awareness, cultivating a wise relationship to it not avoiding, denying, ignoring or repressing afflictive states on one hand, but also not feeding, indulging or identifying with them on the other. So we're going to be practicing directly with thoughts and mental activity tomorrow in tomorrow morning's meditation session. So just as some preparation for that, I'd like to say a little bit about mental activity and what for shorthand I'm referring to as thoughts, emotions, moods, mind states. So with those three or four categories, by thoughts, just what we mean in ordinary English, any kind of mental thought process, any experience that doesn't have much of a physical or bodily aspect to it, but is mostly experienced in the mind. 
So thoughts can be known in different ways at different times. So some people are more verbally oriented and they might thoughts might appear in the mind as words or as an inner dialogue. Some kinds of thoughts are more visual, appearing as mental images, kind of inner movie, as memories, and sometimes we hear music and other types of sounds. So all of these are different types of thought. Then there are emotions. And again, pretty much ordinary, everyday definition of emotions. They have a mental component, but they also have a physical aspect too. So they're often experienced as a mixture of sensations in the body and mental activity in the mind. So for example, if we take anxiety, often in the body that's experienced as a perhaps a hollow feeling in the chest or a fluttery um, feeling or clamminess in the hands or perhaps tightness of the chest and shallow breath. And these physical symptoms might be accompanied by a rush of mental activity, a lot of agitated thoughts, often future-oriented thoughts that intensify the sensations in the body. And that sets up a kind of feedback loop that makes the emotions stick around for longer, unless we bring mindfulness and kindness to them. So emotions then are feelings that come and go. And they're usually fairly easy to recognize because they have some intensity to them. Moods, on the other hand, are more in the background, coloring our experience. And because they're sort of in the background, they're often a little harder to see. They're not quite as intense and they often feel like a composite of different emotions kind of mushed together. So it's not always so easy to recognize what's going on with moods. So for example, we might tell ourselves, well, I'm just in a bad mood. And we can feel sort of stuck there. But if we're practicing mindfulness, mindfulness of the mind, and we investigate a little more carefully, we might start to recognize, hmm, this is a low-level feeling of mild depression. Perhaps that's accompanied by overtones of irritation or frustration. Perhaps there's some self-judgment thrown in and often a whole pile of resistance unconsciously trying to get rid of that unpleasant experience. So when I was putting together this talk and I was trying to find the language to describe the mood, It reminded me of the way wine lovers sometimes describe wine. And I found this example. Soprano winery, wine merges disguised pickle midtones and a caramelized sushi aftertaste in their 1999 Bordeaux. And I was thinking that's a bit like the moods. We might recognize an underlying sour midtone with a belligerent yet anxious aftertaste. So in a way, we're trying to become connoisseurs of our own moods, not so we can dwell in them, but so we can get more clarity about their different components in the service of helping them to release. 
So lastly, we have mind states. And this category includes other types of mental experience that can't be classified as thoughts or emotions or moods. So, for example, there are mental qualities that we can recognize, such as alertness or dullness, concentration or distractedness, interest or disengagement that aren't necessarily emotions but more an overall quality of the mind. And it's uh, it, these can be quite subtle, but just to give it a try even now, if you tune into your mind for a moment and drop below any surface level of thoughts about the talk or distraction or whatever, can you notice and underlying quality or flavor or state. Perhaps there's a background level of curiosity or interest. Or maybe the opposite, dullness or disconnection. Or clarity. Or stillness or ripples of agitation, and so on. So it can be a training, you know. Unfortunately, most of us, I think, growing up in mainstream Western society, we're not trained in emotional literacy. We don't have necessarily the skill of articulating our inner life so if you find it challenging, just see if you can have patience and recognize that this is a skill that we can develop. So in the Satipatthana Sutta, the third establishment of mindfulness, the invitation is to know what's happening in the mind with bare awareness, without reactivity. And I'd like to read you some of the actual words from the discourse because they give us a very particular way of relating to the mind. It says in part, And how, practitioners, does one in regard to the mind abide contemplating the mind? One knows a lustful mind to be lustful, and a mind without lust to be without lust. One knows an angry mind to be angry, and a mind without anger to be without anger. One knows a deluded mind to be deluded, and a mind without delusion to be without delusion. One knows a contracted mind to be contracted, and a distracted mind to be distracted. And it goes through a few more examples of mind states and ends with one knows a concentrated mind to be concentrated an unconcentrated mind to be unconcentrated. One knows a liberated mind to be liberated and an unliberated mind to be unliberated. So the first three examples of mind states that are pulled out for attention are lust, anger and delusion. And these are the three afflictive energies that the Buddha recognized as being sort of the core 
negative energies that tend to drive all of our unskillful reactivity. So lust, greed, compulsion is one. Hatred, ill will, aversion is the second. And ignorance or delusion is the third. So in this sutta we first need to recognize the presence or the absence of these three afflictive states. And then it progresses to more subtle and refined states all the way through to knowing if the mind is liberated. But what I want to highlight with that language is that it's completely impersonal. The Buddha doesn't say, notice when you are lustful or angry or deluded. He doesn't even say, notice when your mind is concentrated or unconcentrated. He just says, know whether these states are present or absent. So right there, the invitation is to understand that these mind states arise due to impersonal causes and conditions. We don't need to identify with them, hold on to them, or get rid of them. At this point, we simply know if they're present or absent. So the language is completely impersonal. And it's completely impermanent. There's this balance between knowing the presence and the absence of things. It's impartial. There's an attitude of equanimity built into the list. A rhythmic investigation from two sides. Is a particular mind state present or is it absent? And this is, I think, is very different from our usual way of relating to mind states where most of us tend to see only one side of the equation, to notice only when a mind state is present and not when it's absent. We also have a tendency, because of the mind's inherent negativity bias, to pay much more attention to when difficult mind states are present. And there's a tendency, because of the negativity bias, to selectively emphasize all of the unpleasant mental states and filter out or ignore completely the pleasant aspects of our experience, let alone the neutral, which some of you were exploring today. So this third establishment of mindfulness can be a very powerful training to go against our usual unconscious biases. So it's an invitation to start noticing not only the predominant unpleasant mind states, but start to recognize more subtle, refined, skillful states of mind, including wisdom itself. So I'd like to go a bit deeper now into what this term wisdom means in the Buddhist context, and particularly in terms of our mindfulness practice. Because, as I mentioned the other day, mindfulness is more and more mainstream. But in the context of the Buddha's teachings, mindfulness isn't just an antidote to mental and emotional distress. 
it has the power to stop these states from coming up in the first place. And it does this through supporting insight. Clearly seeing into the truth of how things are. The truth that everything is constantly changing. Nothing can give us lasting satisfaction. And there is no fixed, permanent entity that I can call myself at the center of it all. So those of you who are familiar with Pali terminology, you might recognize these three as anicca, or impermanence, dukkha, or unsatisfactoriness, and anatta, or not-self. And these three are pointing to the truth that everything we experience is impermanent, imperfect, and impersonal. So that's just another way of framing them. Impermanent, imperfect, impersonal. And the more deeply we see these three characteristics, the more powerfully they support ease, happiness, peace and freedom. The opposite is also true. The more we resist the truth of these three insights, the more we suffer. So I'd like to take a little bit of a closer look at them now in terms of the first one, impermanence. Because when we relate to it skillfully, it can be a useful ally in helping to reduce our afflictive mind states if we consciously remember the truth of change. So, for example, when some form of fear or anger starts to arise, rather than struggling to get rid of it, one option is to simply know this too shall pass. This too shall pass. Because of the truth of change, at some point, the painful state will definitely disappear. And understanding this can help us to release the grip of trying to control it. Often, though, the tendency is to collapse into the afflictive state and unconsciously, with our inner language, make it feel more solid and more permanent by the way we talk about it in our inner dialogue. So this morning we touched very briefly into this practice of listening to our own inner voices, our own inner thoughts. And often when we bring mindfulness to the mind and listen to what we're telling ourselves, it can be quite disturbing. We might hear statements like, I'm always anxious. I never experience any relief. It's just constant misery. And words such as always and never are symptoms of what psychologists call absolutist thinking. And this is an unhealthy thinking style that's linked to anxiety and depression. And in Buddhist terms, this thinking style is unhealthy because it reinforces the delusion of permanence. So if you do notice some of these words, these absolutist words coming up in the mind, try changing the language to something that's factually 
more true, more accurate. So instead of I'm always anxious, just I have a tendency to feel anxious in certain circumstances. Do you hear the difference? With the first one, I'm always anxious. It just closes down and solidifies. But I have a tendency to feel anxious. Opens up some possibility of change. And even just that small acknowledgement that the anxiety is not as continuous as we'd like to believe can help release the grip of it slightly. Now, sometimes when I suggest this to people, they try to convince me that I'm wrong and that their anxiety is is always there. It is constantly present. It has been forever and probably always will be. So one tool that I sometimes offer to help challenge this is to invite people to quantify the intensity of the anxiety or any other afflictive emotion on a scale of 0 to 10. So just staying with anxiety for now, on that scale, if 10 was a full-blown panic attack and 0 was completely calm, throughout the day you might notice, how is the anxiety now? And pretty much always people recognize it's constantly changing. It's fluctuating. And at times it's actually much lower than they might have thought. And again, because of the mind's inherent negativity bias, we tend to pay more attention to when the afflictive emotion has escalated and not recognize when it's gone down. And this, using the scale of 0 to 10, can help train us to acknowledge when the afflictive state is absent and get used to it, abide in those times Noticing how it feels in the body, the heart, the mind, when we're not anxious or angry or lustful and so on. So the second of the three characteristics, uh, dukkha or unsatisfactoriness, the truth of imperfection, is also a powerful ally in reducing afflictive states. And even though this truth can be a hard one to accept at first, the truth of unsatisfactoriness, because we're so driven to try to make everything all right or even perfect. And many of us spend a huge amount of energy trying to control our external circumstances, trying to make all the conditions around us and even the people around us be exactly the way we want them to be. And there's often a deeply unconscious assumption that if I can just do X, Y or Z, then everything will be okay. Then I'll be happy. Yet in spite of all that effort, not many of us can say that we've experienced the lasting happiness we've been hoping for. Now, of course, there are moments of happiness, sometimes many moments of intense happiness. But overall, because of the truth of impermanence, conditions are unstable, constantly changing, just not capable of giving us lasting satisfaction. 
And sometimes when we meet the truth of dukkha, of imperfection, it triggers us into even stronger perfectionism, idealism, efforts to control. And we can bring that same perfectionism to our Dharma practice. And we unconsciously turn our Dharma practice into a giant self-improvement project. One that's actually rooted in self-aversion and resistance to the truth of dukkha. And both of these tend to fuel a sense of lack and inadequacy. But I'm not suggesting that we, by acknowledging the truth of unsatisfactoriness, that we should just give up completely, resign ourselves to be driven by afflictive emotions because, well, it's unsatisfactory, it's dukkha. That will be apathy, not true acceptance. So developing a more balanced relationship to afflictive mind states comes as our practice matures and we're able to look non-judgmentally at our underlying motivations and discern which ones we might be able to change and perhaps which ones we can't, at least at the moment, and to accept that. So when it comes to afflictive states, we need to pay attention to any resistance to them, any expectation that they shouldn't be happening. They're wrong, they're bad, and they're a problem to be got rid of, ASAP. And instead, we try to orient to the understanding that because we're human beings, with vulnerable human bodies, vulnerable human hearts, vulnerable human minds, we're going to be susceptible to greed, to hatred, and to delusion at times. This is normal and natural. As far as I know, there isn't a human being alive who is completely and utterly immune from these. But even though we might understand this in theory, most of us have the tendency to take our own afflictive mind states incredibly personally, to see them as our own unique shortcomings, our own unique weaknesses, our own unique neurosis, which again, in terms of wisdom, of insight practice, is a serious distortion of the truth. So now we come to the third of the three universal characteristics, which is anatta, usually translated as not-self. It's the understanding that everything we experience is an impersonal process. It's not happening to a fixed, solid sense of self who dwells at the center of the universe, even though it often feels that way. And this understanding of anatta can be realized on deeper and deeper levels. Usually we need to the stillness of being on retreat for it to drop down into some deeper understanding. But it's possible to develop some understanding of anatta on a conceptual level, on a psychological level, that can still be useful in daily life. So one thing I'd like to say here in relation to the term not-self is that when we hear not-self, it sets up a maybe unconscious binary of self and not-self that are in competition with each other. 
and we can mistakenly think that the point of the practice is for the self to get rid of the sense of self so that the self can abide in not-self, which just ties us into knots, <laughs> the dog chasing its tail. Because if the self is trying to get rid of the self, it's still stuck in the sense of self that's getting rid of the sense of self. So you hear the kind of knots we can get tied up in. So for myself, myself, you know, there's conventional language, I prefer to think of this as a, a kind of a continuum. And if we think of a spectrum, at one end is the experience of when the self is very highly activated, identified with, and feels solid. And at the other end is when the sense of self feels much lighter, more fluid, more released. Do you have a sense of those two different experiences? So at any moment in the day, we can notice how strong that sense of self feels, how strong or how weak. And depending on circumstances, sometimes, especially we see this in the dyad practice, somebody says something and... Vroom, sense of self is right there, so solid, hard, rigid, tight, and so on. And then perhaps we come back to mindfulness, steadiness, relax, open. It releases a bit. And sometimes we have an experience of the sense of self feeling really faint and there's just a flow of moment-to-moment -moment experience without identification. So you can just play with that as you go throughout the day. Notice what causes and conditions tend to solidify and fix a sense of self. What causes and conditions tend to reduce it and allow this sense of release and of flow. So these are just some ways that we might begin befriending the mind and deepening our understanding of these three characteristics of anicca, dukkha, anatta. And the more we can befriend our own minds, the easier it is to befriend other beings too. So this process of befriending the mind is not just a psychological process of understanding our mental and emotional habits. It leads all the way to the highest happiness, the peace of Nibbana. And we can train ourselves to experience moments of freedom and ease and non-clinging moment by moment as we befriend our own minds more and more fully. And then in turn are able to offer deeper friendship to others too. So on that note, thank you for your kind attention. Let's just take a moment to let the words dissolve. 